Okay. It's my uh, pleasure to introduce uh, Rabbi Avi Walfish, who will give the first this year. And uh, as I mentioned before, he has actually established a, uh, a new field in Jewish uh, studies. Mishnah is a literary document which has uh, many, many possibilities to engage all of us in a variety of ways. So, uh, Rabbi Wolfish lives in Israel and teaches in a variety of places. Uh, he has made major contributions, uh, not only in Mishnah, but in uh, many areas of Jewish uh, learning and thought. He's a, one of the main uh, disciples, students of Rabbi Soloveitchik, both in terms of the Gemara uh, Halacha and also in terms of uh, Jewish thought, Machshava. So, uh, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Avi to please come and teach us this way. Thank you, it's a real honor and privilege to be here today. Uh, as uh, Rabbi Silver noted, uh, I've been working quite intensively on Mishnah, not for 10 years, but actually for 40 years. Uh, since the beginning of my career as a teacher, the first text that I taught as a teacher actually was Mishnah. And uh, one of the things that has guided me over the years is to try to make sense of the anagram that uh, Judy just referred to, Mishnah Neshama. Um, what exactly is the Neshama within the Mishnah? Um, and um, the way I look for it actually is a bit roundabout. Um, I just try to understand how this text works. Um, and it's not simple. Uh, one of the best laboratories uh, for exploring how this text was composed and how it works is the chapter that I selected to, uh, to study this morning, first chapter of Kiddushin. Um, it's a good laboratory because um, on the one hand, uh, the problems in understanding um, uh, problems in understanding the uh, composition of the chapter and the placement of the chapter are apparent uh, virtually to anyone uh, who studies it. Uh, we're talking about Tractate Kiddushin, which is talking about betrothal, the first uh, stage of a Jewish marriage. Um, and uh, as you'll soon see, very little of the chapter actually uh, deals certainly not directly with that issue of betrothal. Okay, and uh, one of the first questions very soon I'm going to uh, uh, ask you to read the chapter and uh, uh, think about certain questions, the study questions in the back of the, uh, of the source sheets that, that you were given. Um, and uh, one of the questions will be actually to locate where does the chapter actually uh, address the issue that the tractate is supposedly devoted to. Um, but beyond that, as, uh, as I expect you'll also see in the Chabrutha session, um, the way the chapter is put together is very strange. Okay? It, it doesn't seem to be a unitary chapter at all. It breaks up very, very clearly into units. And the question is, what are these units doing there? What are they doing together at all? These questions have bothered commentators for many centuries, uh, classic commentators going back to the time of the Rishonim already addressed at least some of these questions. 
uh, and uh, many of their ideas touch on ideas that we'll be uh, uh, we'll be developing later. And uh, with the advent of academic Mishnah scholarship starting in the middle of the 19th century, scholars were immediately drawn to this chapter. And this chapter is uh, probably the most discussed chapter in uh, academic Mishnah scholarship. Um, so it's a very good uh, way of exploring both the problems and issues that confront you when you try to understand Mishnah and to try out ways of trying to solve them. And broadly speaking, there are two directions in which scholars have tried to address these issues. One of them is a diachronic approach, basically, to uh, trace the textual history. Okay, what, what were the original texts and how, how did they come to be put together and, and uh, to sort of uh, uh, dissect and analyze the text as it appears uh, before us. And the other way is synchronic, just try to explain how the chapter coheres, okay? how the different elements uh, work together. And there's no necessary contradiction between the two, but I don't want to get too far ahead of our uh, discussion. What I'd, uh, what I'd like you to do instead is to, uh, you know, is to study and then we'll pursue these ideas a little further. Uh, now, the chapter is also an extremely interesting chapter and uh, it's much discussed for other reasons and those reasons I would like to uh, put on the sidelines. Uh, put on the sidelines, not take off the table. Uh, the chapter has uh, attracted a lot of attention because it's one of the main chapters which talks about discrimination in halacha between men and women. Uh, first of all, starting with the idea of uh, of uh, betrothal being a kind of acquisition and uh, that's a term that we'll have to think about obviously it's a very important term in the chapter but I'm not, th- not going to address it from a uh, gender perspective I am going to try to address it from a textual perspective and see what is it that the text means by the term acquisition okay, but certainly that's one, one uh, flashpoint uh, uh, in the chapter. A second flashpoint is uh, that this chapter is also uh, the uh, location in the Mishnah for the famous rule of uh, women being exempt from positive time-bound commandments. So you've got these two very uh, famous uh, issues that, uh, uh, very famous Mishnahs in this chapter that obviously are not simple uh, uh, for us in the 21st century to confront and to handle, what I want to ask you to do is to try to put these questions aside. Not, not because they're unimportant, but because they're going to distract us from our goal. And I promise you that uh, by pursuing the, what uh, Chazal called the Deres Arukashi Tsara, the long route which is actually short, uh, we will have something to say about these issues. Okay. Uh, we're not going to make apologies, and we're not going to, uh, you know, start getting into uh, issues of uh, is there equality, is there not equality, should there be equality. These are not the kinds of issues that uh, uh, that we'll be able to handle within the framework of the Mishnah. But we will have uh, some things to say about each of these issues, things that I uh, believe will be instructive and helpful for carrying on that other conversation. So the conversation that I don't want to carry on this morning is uh, will be in the background and uh, at some point will be close to being foregrounded but uh, you know, to, in order to help, help us focus on 
what we what what we uh, what we like to focus on, which is how to study Mishnah. Okay, I'll I'll ask you not to get too sidelined by these questions uh, to focus on the real issues of what is Mishnah, what kind of a text is it, and how can it mean? How can we uh, address Mishnah and construe Mishnah in such a way that the uh, Mishnah becomes a meaningful text, a text with a neshama, which uh, if we can succeed in doing that, however imperfectly uh, uh, over the next hour and a half or so, then uh, uh, I, I believe that will be a very fitting, I, I'd rather not call it memorial, but a hamsacha, okay, a, uh, a, uh, uh, an eternalization actually of, uh, of Rivka's memory. So please uh, read through the chapter of Mishnah, you have it both in Hebrew and in English. The Hebrew, by the way, is not the exact same as the printed edition. There are a couple of uh, important uh, shifts in language uh, between the manuscript editions and the, uh, and the printed editions. We have the manuscript edition of the Mishnah on the first page in the Hebrew, and then you have a translation of it on the, uh, 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 on the next page. So each one of you can use whichever text you feel comfortable with. And as I say, uh, it would be a good idea to guide yourself with the study questions that are on the back page. That will give you a handle uh, on, on some of the questions and issues we will be discussing. So uh, please take uh, approximately uh, 20-25 minutes for Chavruka, then we'll reconvene. Okay. Um, okay. I hope uh, most of you have had a chance at least to read through the bulk of the chapter and uh, to notice how this chapter really um, contains a, a very broad variety of topics. Uh, you can uh, find virtually every topic in, in the Mishnah somewhere or another in this chapter. Um, now, um, uh, that of course raises uh, serious questions. The, the one topic that's really hardly in evidence in this chapter is betrothal. Where does betrothal appear in this chapter? First Mishnah, that's it. Nowhere else. Okay? And the interesting thing is it's not even called betrothal. It's called Haishan Niknet Vishloshadrachim. A woman is acquired. Okay? Now, this term acquired again is this loaded term okay, and we're going to put aside for the time being we'll, we'll examine it a little more closely in, uh, in a few minutes okay, but uh, the, the term Kiddushin which, which gave the tractate its name doesn't appear at all in this chapter rather we have uh, acquisition okay, and that opens up a whole series of, of Mishnayot that talk about acquisition different forms of acquisition different people and then different things are acquired or quote-unquote acquired in different uh, in different methods okay and you know so betrothal really is just just uh, a part of this of this broader uh, discussion of forms of acquisition the second part of the chapter okay anybody have a suggested title for it excuse me now the second part of the chapter, starting after we're finished with acquisitions. At one point, the chapter just 
throws acquisition to the winds and starts off on a different topic. Uh, yes? Responsibilities is a nice term, but uh, let's let's stick a little closer to the to, to the main term that the Mishnah uses. The term responsibility appears a few times, but there's a more central term. Yes, commandments. Okay. Well, guess what? We have our title: commandment and control. Okay. Control is uh, my uh, rough translation of acquisition. Okay, and and uh, and commandment. That, that that's where the that's where the title is coming from. Okay, the the chapter is talking first of all about forms of acquisition, and then the second part of the chapter has various things to say about commandments. Okay, so there 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 are various things that the chapter has to, has to say about them. Now, just the very fact that the chapter breaks down into these two parts. Okay, and, and the two parts clearly come from different places. Okay, so this is one of the clearest illustrations of the fact that the Mishnah was not composed by Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yudah Nasi, around the year 200 CE, but was rather compiled or edited or, as scholars like to call it, redacted uh, around that time. Okay, the Mishnah is a compilation. Okay, it's a... And, and Rabbi Yudah Nasi uh, concluded the work of the redaction and in fact if you uh, assemble all the different Talmudic sources uh, you, you can find he's not really the first uh, to engage in this process of redaction the Mishnah underwent several stages of redaction <coughs> uh, one of the key figures in in, uh, uh, in this process was Rabbi Akiva uh, and uh, the next key figure in the process was one of Rabbi Akiva's central disciples, Rabbi Meir, and that's why we have the Talmudic principle, Stam Mishnah Rabbi Meir. Uh, and then Rabbi Udan, I see one generation later, is the one who put the finishing touches on the redaction. And uh, one of the big question marks uh, that's, uh, that's still open is what exactly the, was Rabbi Udan, Nasi's contribution. Okay, and, and uh, uh, that goes back to the question, first of all, what were the sources he had in front of him? How much of the process of missionary redaction was done in the preceding generations, and how much of it did he do himself? Then the second question is, what kind of editor was he? I just had a, uh, a, uh, a conversation a few days ago with uh, uh, the next speaker, Dr. Boris Steinmetz, was talking about copy editing and how there are different ways when you hand in an article for publication there are different kinds of copy editors okay? they're the kinds who basically let you say what you want to say and just you know tinker with it a little bit here and there to fit it into uh, uh, the appropriate framework and then there are the copy editors who decide that what you wrote wasn't good enough and they're going to say it better uh, and the it doesn't always survive the better uh, part of it. So, uh, well, what, what kind of redactor was Rabbi Yudha Nasi? I mean, th these are some of the issues. And since it's so clear from our chapter that we have these two main sections that uh, uh, that are spliced together, so it's a it's a good place to investigate these questions. So, some scholars have taken the diachronic uh, direction and said, well, let's first of all uh, try to figure out where did they come from. Uh, not so much where did they come from, you know, not exactly which Beit Midrash, but let's identify the sections, let's see what these sections are, let's see if we can figure out uh, a kind of time frame and 
um, several generations of scholars found many um, uh, uh, many uh, forms of evidence from the chapter that uh, the the uh, original subsections of the chapter are actually quite ancient. Okay, one of them, by the way, is this term niknet, Beishan niknet. Okay, the term kinyan seems to be an ancient term, and that's for two reasons. One of them is that when Chazal are, uh, are talking about betrothing a woman, they will generally not use the term kinyan, acquisition, but rather use the term the Kadesh, Kiddushin. Okay, that, that's, that's the more Okay, we recite that at every chupa, okay, before every betrothal. Okay, so kiddushin is, is the more usual term, and that term is, is a term that exists only in rabbinic Hebrew in this sense, doesn't exist at all in biblical Hebrew. Okay, whereas the term kinyan, okay, first of all, uh, appears in one instance. In, uh, with respect to uh, betrothal of a woman. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that instance in a couple of minutes. Okay, but first of all, it, it bears noting that the term kinyan actually is a biblical term altogether. When in rabbinic Hebrew, if you want to talk about acquisition, you don't usually use the term kinyan. Okay, the term for acquisition usually is lakahat. Okay, like... Uh, Okay, uh, in, in modern Hebrew you have words like mekach, okay, which also appears of course in, in rabbinic Hebrew. You have the word lakoach, okay, also goes back to biblical Hebrew. I mean, the, the, the contemporary uh, uh, Hebrew terms are, are really rabbinic Hebrew. Okay, and so the very use of this term, was seen by many scholars as being an indication of the antiquity of the chapter, and then they found various other instances, different kinds of verbal usages and so on to indicate the antiquity of the chapter. And so here you see two ancient uh, collections that uh, at some point uh, around the, the end of the second century CE okay, become spliced together. Okay? That of course raises the, the big question as to why and how. Okay, but uh, uh, the, the scholars who are interested in the diachronic aspect are, aren't always so, so concerned about that. They're, they're more interested in, in, in examining the textual history. Okay, um, uh, many scholars have questioned whether we can really be so certain that these terms are so ancient. And it's precisely because uh, of, the, of the possibility that the reason for using the term Kinyan, for example, might have nothing to do with the antiquity of the uh, of this collection. Might have everything to do with the desire of some redactor, whether it be the missionary redactor himself, which is unlikely, or whether it be, which is far more likely, an earlier redactor who put together the original uh, collection. He was interested in uh, putting the quote-unquote acquisition of a woman together with other forms of acquisition and therefore he used the term that can be applied to all of them which is nicknate. Okay, in the in the nifal, in the in the passive form, to be acquired is, even in rabbinic Hebrew, usually niknet. Okay, and so and so the, the use of the term doesn't necessarily indicate antiquity, it indica it, it indicates 
the way in which we read after is thinking. Okay? But that's just the first step. But we have to understand why is the redactor interested in this? Well, well, what is it that interests him in trying, in trying to put it together? So th- these are the questions that, uh, that we're, going to, uh, we're going to try to examine. Okay, so we have the first part of the chapter which talks about Kinyan, okay, and the second part of the chapter that talks about commandment. And the question uh, that I'd like to address next is, uh, where is the dividing point between the two? Yes? Okay, good. The discussion of commandment starts with Mishnah Zayn. Okay? Mishnah Zayn opens with commandments of the father towards the son and uh, positive time-bound commandments, you know, divisions between men and women, and so on, and continues with various other statements regarding commandments. That starts with Mishnah Zayn, okay? And that would indicate that Mishnah Aleph through Vav, 1 through 6, are all part of the acquisition section, okay? Uh, does Mishnah 6 actually talk about acquisition? Well, it depends how you depends how you answer that question. Yes, sir. Okay, it uses terms from the uh, from the realm of acquisition, right? It uses the term misirah, for example. Okay, it uses a term zakhar. Okay, uh, I use the term reshut. Okay, these are all synonyms for acquisition. Okay, so on the one hand you'd say, uh, yes, it is in fact talking about acquisitions, talking about how um, Hekdesh, how the, the um, uh, uh, economic setup or the, the uh, uh, management of the, of the temple, which is called Hekdesh, how they acquire, uh, how they acquire things and comparing it with the ways in which uh, in which uh, secular kinds of transactions are carried out. Um, so that, we would seem to be talking about uh, monetary transactions, in that sense, yes, we are talking about acquisition. But the interesting thing, of course, is what's missing? The word. Kana is missing. The word kana is missing. And that seems very clearly to indicate the Mishnah does not, in fact, belong to the first section. Okay? Does it belong to the second section? Well, we just said it's not at all the subject matter of the second section. It doesn't talk about commandments. So it can't really belong to the second section. Yes? It's almost like a traditional. Okay, very good. Okay? Uh, and that, that, uh, for those who didn't hear, uh, the suggestion was that this is a transitional uh, Mishnah. Okay, uh, in fact, there are two terms that have been uh, suggested. Uh, the term that's, uh, that's used uh, that, that would be appropriate here is your term transitional Mishnah, uh, but uh, some have suggested there's another similar phenomenon, a bridging Mishnah, okay, which means a, uh, okay, uh, um, so 
Um, the difference being whether it belongs organically to one of the sections or whether it doesn't actually belong to either section but serves as a you know as a kind of a bridge between uh, between them. This actually uh, let me correct what I said. This has to be a bridging Mishnah rather than a transitional uh, Mishnah. And just to uh, cement this point, uh, we noted that the word Kinyan is quite glaringly absent from Mishnah Vav. But there are several words in Mishnah Vav that connect it to the next section. The word Lehit Chayev is it. Okay, the word Chayav is a key word. Okay, and we would expect it to be, of course, a key word when it comes to when it comes to uh, um, uh, mitzvot. Okay, mitzvot. You are obligated. You are not obligated. And here it says you are obligated to give its uh, you know, its its corresponding uh, uh, its corresponding piece of property. Okay, so the the word obligation is used within a framework of kinyan. Okay, but the word obligation actually is a word that's much more familiar to us from the second part of the chapter. What else? Okay, the word kol. The word kol is also a key word in the second part of the chapter. Not all the Mishnayot, but almost all the Mishnayot in the second part of the chapter open with the word kol. Kol mitzvot ha'av ala ben. Kol mitzvot ha'ben al ha'av. Kol mitzvot ha'seishazman grama. Kol mitzvot ha'seishazman grama. Skip over Mishnachet where the word is absent, which, by the way, may indicate, going back to the diachronic reading, that Mishnachet is also uh, a kind of later insertion into the chapter for whatever reason. Mishnachet re, uh, reverts back to Kol Mitzvah Shenat Ba'aretz, the Kol Shehit Ba'aretz. Mishnah Yud, which is a unique Mishnah in the whole chapter because it's Agaric. Okay, it doesn't have any halachic content. Okay, it's talking about uh, more spiritual ideas and values and not talking about halakhic obligations. Mitzvah and, and Mishnah Yud also opens with kol hausem mitzvah. Okay? And, uh, and uh, then on kol sheino hausem mitzvah. Kol sheino lobe mikra velobe mishnah velobe derech eretz. Okay? So we have all these words uh, kol. Kol is a leading word, a light word in uh, Mishnah Vav through uh, Mishnah Zion through Yud and appears as well in Mishnah Vav. Okay, so what we actually have then is that Mishnah Vav, in terms of its content, seems to belong to Aleph through A, and Mishnah Vav, in terms of its language, actually seems more closely related to Mishnah Yod Zion through Yud. And here I think we're already beginning to see the sophistication of the redactor. Okay, it's not by accident that these two parts of the chapter are together. Someone thought long and hard about, about weaving them together. Before I talked about splicing them together, now I'm going to talk about weaving them together. Weaving, by the way, is a very apt metaphor for Mishnah because the basic Mishnah unit, we know, is a Masechet. Okay? And a Masechet is actually a, uh, a weaving uh, machine, a weaving loop. Okay? So... Uh, Okay, think about the Shimshon. Okay, Shimshon's hair was tied to a Masechet. Okay, so, uh, okay, and, uh, okay, so, so a Mishnah tractate is actually an act of weaving. Okay, so we have a Mishnah redactor 
who has woven these two sections together first of all by means of a bridging Mishnah a bridging Mishnah which uh, has the content that seems to be carrying forward the section Aleph through He but employing much of the language of the next section Zion through you okay? and of course that doesn't give us too much insight into what he's after Okay, but it begins to, to, to give us a sense that there are no accidents here Okay, now, now as I've said there, there have been many attempts going, uh, going back to, to, to the Rishonim to try to explain what these two sections are, going, are, are doing together um, and you, know, uh, you can take every one of them in turn and find some valuable idea but we're not going to go that route but uh, what we're going to do is we're going to try from the Mishnah text itself to see how far the Mishnah can guide us before we suggest an answer uh, to that question okay so before doing that I want to take a, a closer look at each of the two sections okay the first section Aleph through He and I'm leaving Vav out for the time being because that as we've said is a bridging Mishnah so we're going to put that aside and just look at Aleph through He. If you look at Aleph through He, so there are different way, the different patterns we can notice here. I'm going to start off by by dividing it into two subsections. And again, my criterion for dividing it is going to be first and foremost the language. Okay, because I, I hope you've already begun to notice it's not enough in, in order to understand the the way Mishnah is structured. It's not enough to look at the content. You have to pay close attention to the language and to the language patterns that the Mishnah creates. Okay? Now, we've said that there's a key term running through Aleph through He. It's not just the word Nikne, okay, but it's the whole formula. X Nikne Al Yidei Y. Okay? That's the formula. Okay? And that formula repeats itself many times throughout Aleph through He. Something is acquired through this and this form of acquisition okay but there's another phrase that repeats itself but only about halfway through this section okay and acquires himself or herself okay that appears only in the first three uh, Mishnahs okay now it would seem on, on the surface that the reason for this is trivial what's the reason? talking about people Okay, but that already, I think, starts to problematize for us what this notion of acquisition means. Okay, property cannot acquire itself. Mishnah, Dalit, and Hay are talking about properties that are acquired. They have no ability to acquire themselves. And in fact, the Mishnah, there's no point in the Mishnah talking about, okay, we talked about how I acquired it, now how do I divest myself of this property? There's no point. How do I divest myself of it? The same way I acquired it. I found somebody else to purchase it from me. That, that's all. I purchased it from somebody and I will transfer it to somebody else in exactly the same way. The mission doesn't even have to say that. That's obvious. What's not obvious is when there is a kinyan, okay, and now I'm not going to use the term acquisition. I'm going to stick to the Hebrew term, okay, because we're going to examine it a little more closely. The kinyan, when I'm talking about human beings, works differently. 
Because when I acquire the human being, the human being can also acquire himself or herself. Okay? We're talking about a legal personality. Okay, so there's not just someone who's being transferred from hand to hand. I mean, just to you know, drive home the point, okay, again, this may sound trivial, but I, you know, for, for those who think that the chapter is talking about uh, betrothal as a form of acquisition, a woman is a, a kind of a chattel, I think it's important even to, to state what, what, what might seem to be, to be trivial. Okay, if the husband has quote-unquote acquired the wife, can he sell her? Can he transfer that ownership to somebody? No. Okay, so we're not talking about acquisition in the same sense. In Mishnah Dalit Hay, we're talking about Kinyan in one sense, and in Mishnah Alif Rugim, we're talking about Kinyan in another sense. And, and, the, and the clue, the, the cue the Mishnah gives you to this difference is Koneh Tatsmo. Okay, now let's fine tune this even one step further. There's one place where the Mishnah says, well, Koneh Tatsmo is possible, but it's very complicated. Very difficult to achieve, and therefore, you, you have to work at it. Where, where does the Mishnah do that? The third Mishnah. Okay? When we're talking about Inevit Knani. Okay? And here we're going to talk about another big issue that we're not going to tackle head on. Um, uh, slavery. In Mishnah Bet, we're talking about Eved Ivri and Amma Ivriah. Okay, these are Hebrew slaves, and one of the characteristics of Hebrew slaves is they go free. They must go free. And, according to Chazal and the Mishnah, okay, even an Eved Nirzah goes free ultimately in the Jubilee year. Okay, even a, a slave who's had his, his ear pierced ultimately goes free. There is no slavery in the full sense of the term when you're talking about an Eved Ivri or an Amai Ivriyah. An Eved Knani, on the other hand, is treated as property. <coughs> and as property, it means that, uh, it means, for example, that he does not acquire himself. Let's look at closely at Mishnah, uh, or let's leave this point uh, for just a moment. Um, Okay, he's not fully property and therefore he and therefore he goes free. Evet Knani is much more fully property and therefore um, uh, he is acquired in ways that are more similar. We'll look at this more closely in a minute, to other forms of property, specifically land. Um, and because he is really property, when he acquires himself, what do you need? You need third-party intervention. Okay, the Mishnah says, Okay, V'koneh atzmo b'chesef al yidei acherim u'bishtar al yidei atzmo, Dibre Rabbi Meir. V'chachamir, v'chesef al yidei b'shtar al yidei acherim. It's interesting. There are two ways in which the Eved Kna'ani can acquire himself. Okay, Kesef and Shtar, either through money or through a contract. Okay, a written document. Um, uh, but one or the other of them will need third-party intervention, and then you have a dispute among the, uh, between Tanaim, which one of them requires third-party intervention. But why do you need that third-party intervention? The third-party intervention is because an Eved Knani is not fully a legal personality. Okay? I mean, to, to put it into the terms that the Talmud, use, uh, the Talmud uses, 
the problem with his acquiring himself through money is how does he possess money? Okay, he has no ability to possess his own money. Okay, because Mashakana Evid Kanarabo. Since he is property, so anything that he possesses automatically is owned by the owner. That, by the way, is not true of the Evid Ivri. The Evid Ivri can have his own property. Therefore, the Evid Ivri has absolutely no problem uh, acquiring himself through Giraon Kesef. Okay, in Mishnabek. Giraon Kesef means, okay, if he uh, wins the lottery and uh, he now has a nice sum of money, he goes to his master and he says, I'm buying myself back. And the, and the master has absolutely no ability or right to refuse. That's part of the deal. Part of the deal is that uh, as long as he is beholden to the master economically, okay, he cannot acquire his freedom unless the master decides to free him. Okay? But once he has his own property, which he can have because he's a full-fledged legal personality, okay, so he can simply pay off and uh, you, know, you pay off your mortgage and he, and he goes free. Okay, but the Evidkanani, on the other hand, how does he own property? So the answer is you have to have third-party intervention. You have to have somebody else purchase the slave's freedom. Because he can't do it. He can't own his own property. And according to the other view, the problem is uh, specifically with the star. Uh, the Tosefta the compares this to uh, if I take a star and put, take it from my right pocket and put it in my left pocket. Okay? In other words, uh, I, I gave the... I gave this bill to the to the slave, but the slave is like my my long arm. So if I take a bill and take it from my right hand and put it in my left hand, I haven't accomplished anything. By putting it into the hand of the slave, I haven't accomplished anything. So therefore, in order to free him with a with with this bill of freedom, I have to actually give the bill to a third party, and then the slave goes free. Okay, so, I mean, these are, these are technical details that can be interesting in, in their own right, but for our purposes, what it shows is that the first two Mishnas are talking about people for whom acquiring their own, acquiring themselves back from the one who has acquired them in one sense or another, okay, is not a problematic concept for the uh, for the slave in Mishnah Gimel, it's a problematic concept. And so this Mishnah then appears also to be a kind of transitional, not a bridging in this case, but a transitional Mishnah. <coughs> Clearly, Mishnah Gimel belongs to Mishnah Aleph and Bet. Okay, Mishnah Aleph and Bet, I'll get to in a minute, okay? And Mishnah Aleph and Bet are talking about uh, people who can. Uh, when a person is nikneh, he can acquire himself in return. Mishnah Gimel says, well, you know, in Ebed Knani, he's also a person. So he can also acquire himself, but it's very complicated. Because you have to get over this hump of his actually being property as opposed to a legal personality. So the Ebed really emerges as, some, as a kind of halfway house. On one level he's property, on the other level... <clears throat> on the other level, he's a kind of legal personality in his own right, and you see the Mishnah grappling with how we can square the circle, how, how these two different aspects can can, can coexist. Uh, and uh, here I'll get to again a linguistic way of differentiating Mishnah Aleph Bet from Mishnah Gimel, and that is 
there is one form of uh, repurchase, reacquisition that runs through Mishnah Alephet and is absent from Mishnah Gimel, and that is what? Mitat Ha'adom or Mitat Habal. Okay? In all of the examples in Mishnah Aleph and Bet, one of the ways in which a person can reacquire himself is if his master or husband dies. And then you immediately you automatically go free. Okay? You're automatically released from from uh, from that situation. That is not the case for an Evid Knani. An Evid Knani, in fact, can be inherited. Okay, can be passed on to, to, to children, grandchildren. Torah says, Leolam Bahem Shavod, Nachal Temotam. They are Nachala. They can be passed on from generation to generation. They do not acquire themselves through the death of the Master. And this, I think, is also very highly significant. Okay? Something that is dissolved automatically upon the death of the one who has performed the kinyan already tells me we are not talking about acquisition but what I would call a relationship talking about some kind of contractual relationship and it's a relationship between individuals it cannot be transferred from one individual to another same way that a husband cannot transfer his wife to another man you cannot transfer a Hebrew slave to another man. You cannot transfer an Amaibriyah to another person. Okay? These are non-transferable. And since they're non-transferable, when the person who has performed the Kinyan dies, the relationship dissolves. Just evaporates. That's what happens in Mishnah Aleph and Bet. In Mishnah Gimel, you are still talking about a human being. He still has the ability to reacquire himself. But here you can actually talk about acquiring. Here, for the first time, Kinyan, I would say, can properly be termed acquisition. Okay? Because here it is not dissolved upon the death of the one who performed the Kinyan. And the reason for that is because the Evet Nani really is property, and yet the Mishnah says, yes, on one level he is property, on another level he remains a human being, he has a legal personality, and therefore, yes, he can acquire himself, he can go free. Okay? And he can even accomplish it himself, sometimes, if he does it and uses the right legal mechanism. Okay? So, that's how the Mishnah, in a way, squares the circle with regard to the Yes, sir? You said that you just mentioned that rabbis have changed the, the, uh, the precept of the Torah itself. Both with the Niritzah, where the Torah says Olam forever, and they reinterpret what forever means, and with the Evet Kanani, with the Chaltem Otam, with the Olam Bahem Ta'avodu, the Torah specifically <coughs> has an idea that we stay with them forever. It's as if it's a kind of punishment, mm-hmm. and the rabbis have changed it. They they've reinterpreted and, and changed what the Torah itself has has stated specifically. So. How do you, how do you justify that? Okay, this is far from the uh, from the only case in which the uh, in which the Tarasha Balpeh uh, tones down some of the laws that are harsher and more difficult for us to accept. And in many of these cases, uh, the rabbis have toned them down to a greater or lesser extent. You know, again, you know uh, how all this fits in with modern sensibilities is not our issue, but. 
you know, it's 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 been often noted that in many of the, uh, in many of these cases the, the rabbinic law you know, sort of nudges the uh, nudges the halacha uh, somewhat closer, more or less closer to uh, you know to uh, uh, this area. And yes, you know, the Torah treats uh, the, when the Torah describes Eved Knani, it sounds very much like property, and that's it. And when the rabbis are presenting Eved Knani within the framework of this list of uh, list of kinyanim, so you uh, so you get the sense that uh, yes, this is much more of a kinyan than we had in the previous two mishnayot, but it's much less of a kinyan than we're going to get in the next two mishnayot. The next two mishnayot are talking about things that are only property and cannot acquire themselves because they have zero legal personality. Okay talking about animals. Animals have no legal personality. Okay, so therefore for them acquisition is full pleasure and there's no such thing as an animal acquiring itself. Okay, it's interesting by the way that there are places where uh, in rabbinic law they will talk about animals as having a kind of legal personality of one sort or another. My tractates on Hagen, for example. But that's, that's another discussion. Yes? Along the lines of what you uh, explained earlier about Odolo is referring to one owner. The owner does not live forever. So too will that relationship not be forever. It's already implied in text. Well, but well, known by M. Tavoda, as it says by the Ebbetanani, refers to many owners. Yeah. That's an extent. Uh, okay, very nice. Okay, so, okay. So it could be that there is some. Uh, so some biblical warrant for for this uh, for this differentiation. That's a that's a nice point. <coughs> okay, um, I think this already gives us a bit of a handle on, on understanding that this whole list of kinyanim is not designed to you know, conflate all of them and say uh, everything's acquired. Okay, everything ranging from uh, movable and immovable property all the way on up to uh, marriageable women, they're all acquired. I, I think it's clear okay, that the Mishnah has given us enough textual cues to give us a sense that these things are arranged in some kind of hierarchical fashion. Okay, and as we move up the ladder from Mishnah He to Mishnah Aleph, we seem to be more or less moving up the ladder from those kinds of property that are fully yours Okay, they're fully property, they're chattel, okay, and moving up the ladder to those forms of kinyan that are not chattel at all and not property at all. Yes, we do use the term acquisition. Yes, I believe that that's a meaningful term. As I, you know, uh, th- th- there have been some suggestions that maybe kinyan uh, in the Mishnah doesn't really mean acquisition. I, I think, I think that's an overreading, uh, 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 motivated to a greater or lesser extent by apologetic considerations. I think we are talking about acquisition, but it's not acquisition of a person. Okay, we're talking about acquisition of a kind of relationship, an unequal relationship, okay, in which one uh, is koned the other, so it is an unequal relationship, but in this unequal relationship, okay, it's still a relationship. It's not, it's not property, it's not chattel. Okay, and uh, if we actually try to think about what actually is acquired in the act of betrothal, uh, there have been many attempts to answer this. I think the, the most convincing of them have been suggested, among others, by, by the uh, Nitzi, the, the last Rosh Hashiva Balajin, 
the 19th century suggested this in his responsa, is that what is actually acquired is conjugal rights. That's what's acquired, and, and it should be noted, uh, acquiring conjugal rights doesn't mean okay, on demand. Acquiring conjugal rights means, first of all, that uh, his wife cannot commit adultery, okay? which again is unequal. Okay? By Torah law, a man can have several wives. Okay? A man can be in several marital relationships at the same time. A woman cannot. So in that sense, she is acquired. Okay? When she enters a marital relationship, it has to be exclusive. So that is why the term Kinyan, is, and by the way, that's also why the term Kiddushin okay, is an appropriate term. Kiddushin, as explained by the Talmud, means exactly the same thing, okay, although it may have a different nuance that we may or may not have a chance to talk about towards the end of, uh, 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 of the lecture. Okay, but, but, but certainly it refers to the same idea. She is set aside exclusively for, for the husband, Okay, so it's a relationship, and since it's a relationship, there's no suggestion anywhere in the halakha, okay, that the husband has uh, conjugal rights on demand, okay, anything there, any clear halakha that that that's not the case, and if anyone has conjugal rights on demand, it's actually the woman, for other reasons, okay, but, uh, okay, but he has conjugal rights. She cannot uh, then, then, uh, offer these conjugal favors to, to anyone else. In that sense, he has acquired her. Okay? And uh, what the Nazim further suggests is if at any point a woman says, that's it, I've had it, I'm not sleeping with you anymore, okay, so that, those are grounds for divorce. Okay? Why those grounds for divorce? Because in, by betrothal, he acquired those rights. So she can say, you know, I, I want it once a week, once a month, once every half a year, or whatever, and that's within her rights. Okay? But if she says, that's it, no more, okay, at that point, she has violated this contract. Okay? She has violated the terms of the kinyan. Okay? So the kinyan does mean, yes, something that he acquires that she does not. What is actually acquires is better described as a relationship than, a, than an acquisition, certainly not. Uh, certainly not property. Again, I think this is clearly indicated okay, by the way in which this whole section of the chapter is structured. And we haven't even gotten into how, <coughs> excuse me, how this section interacts with the next, with the next section, which, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Yes? Excuse me, I, I thank you. Yeah. Okay, that, that's uh, uh, the, the reason he doesn't is because the Dalakha uh, <coughs> has suspended those rights. And in the same way that he doesn't get it, those rights on demand, you know, the, the acquisition of the, if the Nativist theory is correct, okay, I'm not 100% convinced the Nativist theory is correct, I think it's the most convincing. Uh, understanding of the uh, of the term, but on the, on the understanding of the theory is correct. The same way he doesn't have those rights on demand, he uh, also doesn't have those rights in uh, violation of other halachot, including the halacha that uh, they have to wait until after Nisun. Okay, that's when the rights. Uh, it's sort of like you know, I, I can I can purchase a piece of property, but according to the contract, I can't actually enter into the property. Uh, you know, for another half a year or another year, right? So that, that's, 
those are the conditions of, of that of that kind of acquisition. That's how you have to understand it. Yes. So if, if we see this as a, a, a development of relationship, then Parashat serves more as a, a bridging because it's talk, then it goes on to relationships of, of the commandments between man and woman and God Okay, very good. I think that's a I think that's a very important point. Okay, that after having understood a little better how uh, the first section, Mishnayot Aleph through Hay, is structured, so now the use towards the end of the first section and at the bridging part between the two sections of terms that actually belong to the second section now starts to make a little more sense. Okay? Uh, let's take a look at Mishnavav. Before we focused on the second part of Mishnavav that talks about the um, uh, uh, that talks about acquisition by Hekdej. Now let's just note acquisition by the temple I think by definition already gives it some kind of a flavor or character that, that takes you beyond the notion of property or, or of acquisition. Okay? When Hekdesh acquires something, for example, it becomes sacred. Okay? And, and therefore it's also subject to Pidyon. It's subject to redemption. It's not subject to acquisition so much as subject to redemption. Okay? And that could very well be the reason why the forms of acquisition for for Hekdesh are money and verbal statement. Verbal statement is the first time it's appeared anywhere in the chapter. There are other kinds of things that are required not through verbal statement but through written deed. Okay? Ishtar. Okay? And uh, if we have a chance we'll, we'll take a, a look at which things precisely are acquired through that form of acquisition. Okay, it's a different kind of acquisition. Okay, um, but to acquire something simply through an oral verbal statement, that appears only with regard to Hekdesh. Okay, and very possibly the reason for that is precisely because Hekdesh is not acquisition. Okay, uh, Hekdesh is a concept of sanctity. Okay, there is a kind of sanctity that means belonging to the domain of the temple. Okay? The treasurer of the temple can dispose of it in certain ways, use it for upkeep, maintenance, what have you. Okay? Um, and and uh, uh, that's actually a form of sanctity more than it's a form of acquisition. So even though the, the Mishnah is hacking this on to a section dealing with acquisition, but we, we really stretch the notion of acquisition uh, close to the breaking point, point. Much as the opening Mishnah stretches the term of acquisition to the breaking point. Okay, betrothal is not, re- not really, properly speaking, an acquisition. Okay, it's really establishing a relationship. Okay, because uh, a certain inequality in it makes the term Kinyan appropriate. Okay, but uh, at the end, Okay, we're stretching it in another direction. Okay, we're saying we will talk about something that is akin to acquisition, but the Mishnah, interesting, doesn't even use the term acquisition. Instead, it uses the term reshut, which means possession or domain. Okay, so 
I, I think the Mishnah is already toning down the notion of of, uh, of acquisition here as we start to gear up for the next next section. But let's focus for a moment on the first part of this Mishnah. First part of the Mishnah talks about acquiring through barter. Okay, Kolarasa Damid Bacher means that uh, I am using one uh, one item of property as a uh, um, uh, as barter for another. Okay, they give the example of uh, an ox for a cow. Okay, so if I'm uh, exchanging an ox for a cow, so then once one person pulls his uh, part of the property and uh, zacha. Okay, again the term zacha. Okay, can mean to acquire, but it also has a broader sense. Okay, zacha means zechut. Okay, he acquires a privilege. Okay, once he acquires this privilege, so then nitchayev. Instead of saying the other one has acquired this one, okay, in other words, A gave B what goes to him, and now B is obligated to give the barter, to give the other side. Okay, so here we're formulating kinyan in the language of obligation. Okay, so again, the, we're getting a different perspective on kinyan. Kinyan is now here being presented as, a, as something that you can use the terms of obligation for. And that's very interesting because obligation, we thought, should really be reserved for the second part of the chapter. I'm obligated in commandments. Well, well, what does it mean that kinyan is obligation? What term would we normally use for kinyan? We use before acquisition, or in my title I suggested the term control. What is the standard form of kinyan that runs through most of these Mishnahs? Uh, the Mishnah... Excuse me? I, I can't hear? Kesef. Okay, Kesef appears in only some of them. Okay, the, the one that appears in most of them, not in all of them, is Chazakah. And that's in fact the one that appears in, the, in Mishnah Vav as a kind of summation of the whole first section. Uh, you look at the second line of Mishnah Vav, second half of the line. Rishut HaGavah BeChesef, Rishut HaHedyot BeChazakah. Whereas the transfer of possession for Gavah, for Ekdesh, is through money, the transfer for hediot, okay, for a layman, for, for, for uh, uh, the domains that aren't sanctified, are bechazakah. Now, chazakah actually has very different meanings as you go through the chapter. Chazakah, normally in the Mishnah, chazakah is used for evetnani in Mishnah Gimel. Okay, chazakah in Mishnah, in Mishnah Gimel actually means uh, the master gives the slave a command and the, and the slave has to serve him. Okay, he has to tie his shoes for him or he has to carry his, uh, uh, you know, carry his towel to him to the, to the bathhouse or whatever. Okay, a form of service. Okay, when the slave carries out a form of service, that's called chazakah. <coughs> chazakah appears again in Mishnah in the framework of acquiring land. And chazakah for land means to restrict access or open access to it. That we learn from a Mishnah in Bhavavatra. Okay? You either restrict or, or, or facilitate access to the land by building a fence or by tearing down a fence. Okay? That is uh, called Chazakah. So Chazakah 
really represents control. I control the slave by having him serve me. I control land by controlling access to it. What about immovable pro what about movable property? The term Chazaka was not used in Mishnah al and yet in Mishnah Vav, the Mishnah uses this as a catch-all term for all kinds of secular uh, transactions. So what, what, what would correspond to Chazaka in terms of acquiring movable properties? Mishicha, drawing it, or Mesira, handing over the reins, okay? or Hadbaha, lifting it up. Literal physical control. When I talk about movable property, I can physically control it in the fullest sense, and that is called chazaka. When I'm talking about land, I can't pick up the land and take it with me. Okay? What I can do is grant or impede access to the land. Okay? So that's my physical control of the land. And my control of the slave, interestingly, again, is not physical. Okay? If I lock up the, la the, the slave, or I let him run loose, or if I pick him up, okay, I haven't acquired him by that. Okay, my control of the slave actually again is when he serves me. It's more it's more of a relationship than it is physical control. Okay, well, well once again. Okay, so the term uh, Kinyan now we've seen really that's a broad variety of things and I think we're beginning to understand why the term Chayav is applicable to Kinyanim as well. Okay, you can talk about Chayav because acquisition is not just a question of control. It's also a question of obligation. Of obligation. Whose obligation? The obligation of the society to respect my control. Okay? Uh, uh, property is not just a, a question of my having physical or other kind of control of what I've acquired. It's also a question of societal recognition of that control. Okay? And therefore, obligation is, is an integral part of the framework of acquisition. Okay? Now let's look at the second. Okay? Now let's look at the, at the second section of the chapter. Yes? Kedushin has a lengthy discussion about Amira referring to Kedushin. Yes. I'm wondering if the Mishnah doesn't say it, but if the Gemara is doing what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Your, your, your point is very well taken. And uh, in fact, the the other cue is the chapter 2 of Kiddushin, which we don't have in front of us. The chapter 2 of, of Kiddushin, uh, which actually uses the term Kiddushin, in other words, relating betrothal to Hekdesh, okay, that chapter doesn't know about acquiring a woman through Shtar, it doesn't know about acquiring a woman through Bi'ah. It knows only about acquiring a woman or sanctifying a woman is actually the term sanctifying a woman through uh, money and throughout the chapter the Mishnah repeatedly refers to the Amira what is being said as you as you give the Kesef so I think the Mishnah among other things is taking our bridging Mishnah, Mishnah Vav and using it not just as a bridge between the two parts of the chapter but also as a bridge between our chapter and the next chapter 
Okay? This is looking forward to Kiddushin. This is looking forward to uh, to viewing betrothal not as a form of acquisition at all, but as a form of sanctification. Yes? The question also has to do with other, with society, other people recognizing your control. Recognizing? The husband's control over the That's right, that's right. She's also everybody else. That's right. Okay, now, it, uh, yes? So, is that parallel to Bia? Chazaka is parallel to Bia. That's, that's a very, uh, that's a very important point. And in fact, you have three Mishnayot that have a very profound interrelationship in the first section. The woman is acquired through three means. Kesef, Shtar, and Bia. The Eved Knani is acquired by Kesef, Shtar, and Chazaka. And land is acquired through Kesef, Shtar, and Chazaka. Okay, and this parallel between Woman, uh, between woman and land is, is particularly suggestive okay, and I think has a lot of resonance and we'll begin to see why that's important as we move into the next section of the chapter okay? if, we, if we look at the next section of the chapter that breaks down also into two parts Mishnah, Zayin and Chet basically talk about differences between men and women in the realm of commandment Okay, and Mishnah Zayin talks about, first of all, differences in terms of commandments dealing with the family and family structure, and then talking about ritual commandments, leading into Mishnah Chai, which talks about commandments that are temple-related. And in all these areas, there is a differentiation between men and women. Men and women do not have equivalent obligations of commandments uh, uh, in, in these areas. But Mishnah Tet shifts our focus. We're no longer talking about men and women within the framework of commandments. We're talking about commandments in the land and outside the land. Okay? Men, women, land. Does that sound familiar? That's the idea we just noted. Frames the first section of the chapter. Acquisition or kinyan of women Kenyan of land, that's what frames the first section of the, of the chapter. In the second section of the chapter, first two Mishnah, Mishnah talk about the di- differentiation between men and women in terms of commandments. The next section talks about commandments related to land. Now what about the last Mishnah, which is Agari? There's no halakhic statement in this Mishnah. Okay, but there's something that relates it to the previous Mishnayot and specifically to the previous Mishnah. Land. Okay? What happens to a person who does a single mitzvah? Okay? He is benefited, his days are lengthened, and he inherits the land. Nochel et He inherits the land. Okay, now if I compare this to the previous Mishnah, I get a very interesting picture of, of a kind of a dialogue between these two Mishnayot. The Halachic Mishnah, Mishnah Teh tells me that when there are land-bound mitzvot, those land-bound mitzvot are obligatory only when I own the land. I meaning I, the people of Israel. Okay? When the land is under the physical control of the people of Israel, that creates an obligation of mitzvot. When the land 
is not ours, then these mitzvot cannot be performed. Okay, so control of the land has meaning and ramifications for carrying out mitzvot. Mishnah Yud now complements this idea by telling us that by performing mitzvot, I gain control of the land. Okay? Very nice little dialogue here between the halakha and the agadah. Okay? As far as the halakha is concerned, I must own the land in order to do commandments. Because without control, I can't do commandments. And the next Mishnah says, I must do commandments if I want to control the land. Okay? And the Mishnah continues with three specific commandments. Okay? Study of Torah. Okay? Mikrai Mishnah. And Derech Eretz, which I take to mean profession. Okay? A person who studies Torah and has a profession, this person, of him it is said, this person has permanent presence. Okay? Which presumably means his presence continues on to the next generation. It's not by accident that Mikra, Mishnah, and Derech Eretz are two of the main commandments of the father towards the son, which only fathers are obligated and not sons. Okay? If I perform these mitzvot, then I have something to transmit to the next generation. Okay? If I have a profession, then I transmit to him a, an ability to maintain himself and to contribute to society. And that's not enough, obviously. I must have Mikran Mishnah. Okay? I must also have study of Torah, and then I have the spiritual tradition that I can transmit. That gives me That gives me a permanent presence. And the person who has neither of them, what does the Mishnah say about that person? The person who has neither of them, what do we say? He does not belong to society. He's not part of the land. Okay? He, he's not part of the earth. He's not part of the land. How do we acquire presence in the land by having a profession and by, and by study of Torah? These are the two components of it. Now let's look at another interesting uh, linguistic point and now we'll begin to see a bit more of the sophistication of the Mishnah. How do the two parts of the chapter fit together? I think the ideas are starting to come clear, but before cementing them, I'd like to follow up another two or three textual cues. One of them is, when the Mishnah says, a person who performs all three commandments, what term does it use for performing the three commandments? End of next to last line. Machazik. Hamachazik Pishloshtam. Why is that an important term? Chazaka. We're going back to terms of acquisition. The same way that towards the end of the first section, the Mishnah used terms of obligation in order to describe uh, acquisition, towards the end of the last section, the Mishnah uses a term of acquisition to refer to mitzvot. Now there's another term of acquisition in this Mishnah. But it's not familiar to us from the first section. It's actually a variation. Nochel. Nochel. But Nochel adds something new to the theme of acquisition. Nochel is not just... 
Okay? Nochel is not just a chatter. It's not something that changes hands. Nochel means a piece of property with which I have a very powerful relationship and which I transmit to the next generation on and on. Okay? So acquisition of the beginning of the chapter, by the end of the chapter, has become nochel. How did acquisition become nachala? Because I added something. I added mitzvah. Okay, I'd like to uh, conclude with one final connection between the two parts of the chapter and then try to wrap it up. Um, the Mishnah opens with an opening formula that appears once and once only in the first section of the chapter. Talmud is very uh, uh, stimulated by this, uh, by this sentence and has a great deal to say about every single word in that sentence. Okay? But I just want to focus on one point. These, this sentence is echoed in the final Mishnah. Rakut HaMishulash Okay, is Shlosha and Drachim Drachim, anyone? Derech Eretz We have two sections and how did the Mishnah weave them together? The Mishnah wove them together first of all by a bridging Mishnah Secondly by uh, bringing towards the end of the first section terms that are referring to acquisition, but really are taken from the language of obligation, of commandments. By, at the end of the second section, using terms that are referring to rewards for commandments, but the rewards for commandments are from the language of acquisition, but giving acquisition a new quality, a new character. Okay? Uh, to be part of the Yishuv, to be part of the land, to inherit the land, to make it your heritage. They're also uh, woven together at the beginning of the end. Okay, an envelope structure, inclusio, for the chapter, the beginning of the first section and the end of the second section are woven together by Shloshad Rachim and Chutamishulash Derech Eretz. Okay, so it's clear that the Mishnah redactor wants us to understand that two themes that at the outset seem to us to be almost opposite. The first theme is the theme of control, acquisition. What's mine? Okay, I am, okay, I would read this in, in light of the first chapter of, of Breshit. Okay, Kibshua. Okay, I conquer the land. I acquire, I make my presence known in the land. Okay, and I extend my control and there are various things that belong to me or even if they don't belong to me they're part of my social framework in which I'm, okay, I'm the main player. Okay, they belong to my, to my social framework, the social framework that, uh, that, uh, that is under my control. That's the first section. The second section is obligation. That's the second chapter of Genesis. That's the person who has obligations, the person who has to surrender his will and accept the will of God and carry out things that he doesn't choose. He's not in control. In the, the realm of, of commandment, you're not in control. And by weaving these two sections together, 
Okay, I think what the Mishnah is suggesting is that in fact these two ideas are not as opposite as we thought they were. Because acquisition is not as absolute a concept as we thought it was. It has many shadings and nuances and one of the nuances of acquisition of Kinyan is that Kinyan also entails responsibility. It also entails mutuality. It entails recognition. It entails being part of society, uh, part of the society in which other people's rights are respected. That's an integral part of the notion of control. And it is also an integral part of the notion of commandment. The commandment is not abject surrender. Commandment involves control. Commandment is designed to help ensure control, but a control of a different nature. Control of nachala, control of a heritage that can be transmitted from one generation to another, both physical and spiritual heritage. Okay? And, and, and mitzvah also requires control of the land. If I don't have control of the land, I cannot carry out the commandments. So, control is both a goal and a condition of commandment. So, commandment and control, which at the outset I think we would have seen as almost opposite ideas, are presented in the chapter as ideas that must always be interwoven. Okay? In very interesting and sophisticated ways. And one thought to conclude, what does this have to do with control? Okay? Well, here I'm being more speculative. I don't, I, I don't know, and uh, everyone is welcome to think of their own answers, but I'll throw out a, one or two lines of thought. Okay, one line of thought is that betrothal okay, is also very much an interplay of control and, uh, and obligation. Okay? You must have, in the halachic view of marriage at least, okay, you must have clear delineation okay, of what the rights of the parties are, and specifically for our chapter, the rights of the of the husband. Masechet Ktubo will talk a lot more about the rights of the wife <coughs> in the second stage of uh, of the marriage. But here we're more more focused on the rights in 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 this one direction. Okay, but it also of course involves responsibility and mitzvot play a major role in the family structure in the second part of the chapter. So marriage is, is very much built on this interplay. A second thought is that the same way we talked about how uh, both acquisition and commandment are not carried out by the, indiv- by the individual in isolation. But our chapter presents both of them as taking place within the framework, within a social framework, framework first of all of a mini-society, a family, and a broader society, or a household and a broader society of which you're a part. Marriage, of course, also is not just an individual relationship between two individuals, which, by the way, is what will be stressed in the next chapter of the Mishnah, chapter 2, is the individual connection between the husband and the wife. But our chapter is focusing on marriage much more as the creation of a social unit. Okay? And as creation of a social unit, the Mishnah is examining how these two themes of control and commandment function within uh, a social framework. Uh, as, uh, uh, as you've seen, we've just scratched the surface and there's much more to be said.
But uh, I, I hope you've had you've seen enough to both get a bit more of a sense of the topic at hand and <coughs> excuse me, and uh, no less important to get a sense of the Nishmat Mishnah. What is the animating soul behind the Mishnah redaction? Thank you. Rabbi Wolfish and share with you the, um, the fact that you don't have to stop learning with him here today. Rabbi Wolfish has been working on many different uh, interpretations and chapters, reviews of different all the, all the Mishnah Nayot and I would like to invite you to participate with us in the Drisha website. We thank Judy Heiklin for her un- unstoppable support and uh, persistence in this project and it's been a pleasure to work with both of them and Rabbi Wolfish it has been a pleasure to work with you this is on, if you see on our website it's through the online learning section the commentaries there's a rationale there are many many it's a, it's a source of much information it leads you to other chapters other um, articles from, by other people it has commentaries and podcasts uh, it's a really a wealth of information your learning doesn't have to stop here today please follow us on, on the Jerusha website thank you again to Judy Heiklin and to Rabbi Wolfish break for lunch um, there are two stations outside so no need to hover over all the places take your food find a place we have three classrooms that are available with tables if you'd like I ask that you all be back here at 1.45 so we can continue with our program. Thank you.